So if you have a Bible with you, let me ask you to turn with me to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 28. We're there. We're in the very last chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, Last time we were together, two weeks ago, I did a whole chapter in one message, Acts chapter 27, about the storm. Uh, Today, I've decided to split Acts chapter 28 into two messages, and that'll be today, and then, Lord willing, two weeks from now, we'll finish it. Because next week, we have a special speaker. We have a guy from the Creation Institute. They were going to be in SoCal with a couple of different conferences they're doing. And they called our church and said, hey, we have a guy available to come speak and teach on creation. Would you have some availability in your schedule next Sunday? So we talked about it a little bit and said, you know what? That would be a great thing to do. So I'm sorry we didn't put a formal announcement out there. But if you have somebody that you know has questions about creation and uh, that you think would benefit, make sure you invite them next week. Because it could be a special service, a special time as we place emphasis on creation. And I know that you'll be blessed and encouraged to hear that next week. And so this Sunday, Acts 28, 1 through 10. And then next Sunday, the Creation Institute. And then the Sunday after, Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 28. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And if you've got notes with you there in your bulletin, you see the title of the message this morning is A Time to Heal. A Time to Heal, Acts chapter 28. We're talking about Paul on the Isle of Malta. And so let's read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll jump into our time here together this morning. Luke writes this. He says, After we were brought safely through, when we, we then learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had, been, it had begun to rain and was cold." When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or to suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place where lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sell, they put on board whatever we needed." Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sing, to worship, to hear the word read to us this morning. And this passage is such a unique story that's memorable for all uh, students of the New Testament. And as we get to dive in a little bit more deeply into exactly what was happening on this account of the shipwrecked crew being stuck there on Malta, the snake bite, the healing of, of these people, God, help us to learn lessons that would aid us in life, to understand your character, your love, to understand our witness and our responsibility to humankind and to one another. Be glorified in our time together this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
According to Chuck Swindoll, around 400 BC, there was a Greek physician who we know who rose above his peers and he would be considered to be the father of ancient medicine. Who am I talking about? We're talking about Hippocrates. He became that first really well-known, studied medicine man who actually publicly declared that diseases occur from natural causes, not from evil spirits or as some sort of punishment of the gods. And for his conclusion on this matter, apparently Hippocrates was placed in prison for some 20 years for finally separating medicine from religion. He also resisted the philosophy of his contemporaries who aggressively diagnosed and treated diseases, often causing more harm than good. And so in the Hippocrates Oath, it's first do no harm, because Hippocrates believed that the body's ability to heal itself was amazing. And so a part of his medical prescription would often be immobilization, cleanliness, soothing balms, and plenty of rest. In fact, he opens his well-known medical book named Precepts with this simple bit of wisdom. Quote, healing is a matter of time, but it also sometimes is a matter of opportunity. Therefore, he believed in giving the body both time and opportunity to heal. And for centuries after Hippocrates passed on, another physician accompanied Paul on his harrowing journey across the Mediterranean. And as an intellectual surpasser of of, of Hippocrates, Luke undoubtedly um, also understood the importance of time and opportunity for healing. We know that he attended to Paul, and certainly he loved the fact that his patient, Paul, would be able to now take the opportunity to rest and to heal while there on the Isle of Malta. As King Solomon wrote a thousand years earlier in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under the sun. In Ecclesiastes 3, 3, among those appointed times, it says, there is a time to heal. Now, isn't it interesting that in our modern enlightened area where medicine has advanced light years beyond the knowledge of Luke and Hippocrates, we still have little room in our theology for rest or for the biblical concept of the time to heal. We want people to get over it. And if you've spent much time trying to recover from an ailment that can't be explained by blood work or an x-ray or an MRI, or if you have been trapped in, in a certain situation and sickness or an ailment where you don't know exactly what the cause was that maybe even lent itself to a melancholy mood, or if you've ever grieved deeply because of the loss of a loved one and you can't seem to recover, you've undoubtedly heard someone say, snap out of it, get on with the program. Well, I believe Hippocrates was right. Healing sometimes is a matter of time, and it is indeed a matter of opportunity which few want to offer today. Now, after a a long ordeal in Caesarea, followed by a two-week crisis at sea, Paul certainly could use this three-month rest before pushing on to Rome. But more important than his personal rest and health would be how that would be affected while in Malta, God would bear witness through the apostle by healing many on the island. In times of physical, mental, and emotional healing, whether miraculous or the result of the normal processes, 
offer an opportunity to express and reflect on the compassionate and redeeming power of the gospel in one's own spiritual life. The same power, this power that Paul experienced would be shared with those on Malta. And this same power and healing that Paul went through would prepare him for the next stage of his journey. Now this morning, I want us to examine the, these three headings that you see on your notes there that will help us capture exactly what happened on the Isle of Malta. Number one, we're going to look at the, the hospitality of the islanders of Malta, verses one through two. And then in verses three through six, we're going to see the horrendous event of a snake bite. And then number three, the healing that affected the whole island. And so let's start with number one this morning, and let's talk about the hospitality of the islanders at Malta. And the first blank there, if you are taking notes, says the crew was brought safely through. The crew was brought safely through. And of course, we read about that in verse one, where Luke writes, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Now, this chapter starts with Paul being safely shipwrecked on the Mediterranean island of Malta. He had left Caesarea more than two months earlier and he was bound for Rome to have his appeal to be heard by the emperor. And in a risky attempt to reach a more favorable harbor on Crete to spend the winter, the apostle's ship had been caught up in a tropical storm. Chapter 27 called it a northeasterner. And this had driven the vessel for the last 14 days where they couldn't see the sun or the moon for for these two-week periods. And it had driven this ship some 600 miles, some say, across the Mediterranean to Malta. Finally, the end of chapter 27, we talked about how the crew attempted to beach the ship, but it it ran aground and was destroyed by the pounding surf. Miraculously, though, all on board, the 276 persons on board were saved, just as Paul had predicted in Acts chapter 27, verse 22, where Paul said, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Paul also predicted in Acts 27, verse 26, but we must run aground on some island. And both of those promises were fulfilled when the ship reached Malta. And so having made it safely through the breakers to the beach, the mariners and the prisoners alike huddled, wet and exhausted, but at least they were safe on the shore. And it was only then that they found out that the island that they were on was called Malta. Although some of the crew may have stopped at Malta before, they had never seen this particular part of the island, which is now known as St. Paul's Bay. Malta is located about 60 miles south of Sicily. It's about 17 miles long and nine miles wide. And since it is not a large island, it would not have taken long for the sailors to do some expedition and discovery to finally be able to say, you know what, this is the Isle of Malta. It wasn't completely unknown. It just wasn't on, uh, on the stop that they were planning on making on the way. Uh, they also probably found out from the nearby inhabitants that they indeed were on the Isle of Malta. The original people of Malta were of Phoenician descent, who were a well-known seafaring people. In fact, the word Malta was originally a Phoenician word, and it means a place of refuge. 
How appropriate, as this crew had finally found a refuge in the midst of their chaotic journey, they would do so here at Malta. Current day Malta became a British possession early in the 19th century and gained its independence in 1964. Well, now that we see that all 276 persons on the ship were brought safely through the storm, let's now look at verse number two, and your next blank says, the crew received a warm welcome. The native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. The native people showed us unusual kindness. The word native here is the word barbaros. It's where we get our word barbarian from. And while we often think of a a barbarian as some type of uncivilized, uncouth, an uneducated person, the word was simply used by the Greco-Roman culture to describe anyone who didn't speak the Greek language or that their culture was simply not Greek-oriented. And so these natives are not savages or uncivilized people at all. In fact, they were, the Bible says, unusually kind. The word here describes their extraordinary acts of kindness. They weren't just doing the bare minimum. They went above and beyond to demonstrate charitable kindness to these shipwrecked passengers. And what did they do? Well, they they kindled a fire, which would have been much appreciated by these soaking wet travelers who just needed to get the chill out of their bones. And they welcomed them all. Now, this has the idea of meeting their personal needs. It means to extend kindness in such a way that may even include receiving them into their homes and into their, their circle of care. The same word is used in Romans chapter 15, verse 7, about hospitality and welcoming. Uh, it says in Romans 15, 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so the reception of these sailors on the Isle of Malta showed that these indigenous people there were anything but barbaric. They showed kindness beyond anything that would have been expected. And I think what I'm trying to point out here is that if a bunch of barbarians, which I just said are not savages, but they're just not Greek people, can show that kind of kindness to 276 stranded travelers, then what do you think God expects of us? What would God expect of us? God requires Christians to show this degree of kindness to one another. And that's true for church leaders, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, which shows the characteristics of an elder. One of those is to be hospitable. It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, or the, the, the husband of, yeah, one wife, I'm making sure I said that. Uh, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and then it says hospitable, and then able to teach. And so it's a reminder that our church leaders, a pastor, an elder, should demonstrate this quality of hospitableness. Um, uh, Titus chapter 1 verse 8 says the same thing, that an elder is to be hospitable. Not only is this a requirement of a church leader, but the Bible also says it's to be expected for every born-again Christian. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 says to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I think that 
It is also helpful here to realize that the hospitality which these pagan Maltese are exhibiting illustrates an important theological truth. One aspect of the fact that we're all created in the image of God, what we call the Imago Dei from Genesis chapter 1, it means that we are not just an outer person, but we're an inner person. Not just the outer man, but the inner man. Every man has a soul. And, And the Bible teaches that all people have a conscience and the moral law of God is actually written on our hearts because we belong to him. And although the specifics may vary, every culture holds some things to be right and other things to be wrong. Now, if you just hold your place in Acts, go over one book to Romans, just to your right. You see where this is clearly spelled out in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where Paul sets this forth, this truth that we're talking about, the imago Dei, the fact that the law is written on our hearts, is written clearly in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And it says, when, now, for when Gentiles... So the people in Malta certainly were Gentiles. They weren't Jews, they were Gentiles. But for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So we're just reading there in Romans 2, hey, we're created in the image of God, and because of that, we know that there are certain things that are right and wrong. There are certain things our conscience would convict us about, and it's not enough to bring gospel-saving knowledge into our hearts, but it's enough for, for mankind in general to be able to demonstrate kindness. And so in this case, on the Isle of Malta, we're reading about how these natives or these indigenous people are caring for their unexpected guests who were in great need. They're showing in a general way that caring for others indeed is the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do. Showing kindness to others doesn't necessarily even show that you're saved. But acts of kindness remind us that there is a good God who created us as people to reflect God's character and God's grace extended to the world. And so let me just ask you this morning as we're just looking again and kind of amazed at the unusual level of hospitality that these pagan people are showing to Paul and the other travelers there, are you showing hospitality to others? Not just to those who can pay you back in similar ways, like friends or family, but technically the word means showing kindness to strangers, those that you don't even know or have an ongoing relationship with. Do you invite others into your home and give them a warm welcome? Are are you showing the love of God in practical ways by loving your neighbor or speaking words seasoned with salt and dripping with grace? I hope that you would never... Let an unbeliever or a pagan culture outdo you in showing kindness to others. Well, now that we've seen the hospitality of the inhabitants of Malta, let's look at number two, the horrendous event of a snake bite. Verses three through six, your next blank says, the attack of the snake. Sounds kind of like the title of some horror movie, right? The attack of the snake. It's happening here in verse 3, where we read, when, Paul's, well, excuse me, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. 
Now, obviously, wood would need to be gathered in order to keep the bonfire going. I mean, there are 276 passengers who are trying to keep warm. Uh, I like a good bonfire. I don't know about you, but uh, growing up in the South, we would sometimes make great fires outside. Occasionally, we would do a church bonfire where we would all gather together, and it's just an amazing experience. In fact, our family was able to go to Australia back in 2018, and the last night that we were there, uh, the community of the church, and they had a a big farmer who had a a large farm, and he said, hey, tonight we're doing a bonfire. And I remember we were like, oh, yeah, we love bonfires. We'll, We'll come to the bonfire, but we show up out in this field and the bonfire was big, bigger than this building. I mean, they had this massive bonfire where we thought we were going to like roast marshmallows and get up close, you know, and we were like, whoa, that is like a forest, that's what we call a forest fire. It's, a, it's amazing uh, to remember that. You guys remember that? It was unbelievable. So, uh, you know, so this is what's going on. There's a big bonfire, 276 people. They needed to keep, keep warm. Paul was a prisoner, but Paul had also, if you remember, kind of become the outspoken leader. Where, where the captain of the ship isn't verbalizing and leading the, the, the ship when it was going down, but Paul was like, hey, take some food, we're going to be okay, stay on the ship, we're going to get to where we need to go. So Paul was outspoken with his, with his words, but he was also outspoken with his deeds. He was the epitome of a, of a servant leader. I mean, nobody doubted that Paul was legit in his courage, but Paul also liked to serve people. And so he's gathering sticks. I mean, think about it. He's just gathering sticks for the fire. And his, his job, or his uh, actions, rather, show us that no job is beneath the servant of the Lord. Uh, one commentator by the name of William Barclay commented on this verse, quote, it is only the little man that refuses the little task. I like that, right? It's only the little man who refuses the little task. In other words, if we're great men and women of God, then we want to be willing to do the simplest of tasks, right? And this is a measure of Paul's character, that he humbly stooped to perform such a menial task, that humility is essential for true leadership. Even the Son of Man, Jesus said, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Jesus lived out this sort of service in his own life with the classic illustration of humble service when he washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. And so with, a, with an effort to serve others, when Paul's collection of bundled sticks were brought near the fire, uh, one of those sticks wasn't a stick but a viper. It was probably cold until it came close to the fire, and then the heat heated it up, and it came out and bit Paul on the hand. And this is, a, again, a horrendous event to be bitten by a viper. Uh, what shock and, and an awful feeling must have came into Paul's stomach just in that moment of the surprise of it all. Zookeeper Michael Fetterman said this about a snake bite. He said, a viper bite, this includes most rattlesnakes and copperheads and other vipers throughout the world, in general, with some exceptions, have venom that immediately attacks the tissue, red blood cells, walls of the capillaries, and starts digesting the area. It feels like a burning that starts to swell and a thump like a bee sting a hundred times over instantaneously. The pain continues to get worse with every minute. The area continues to swell and become discolored. Large blisters start to form as the skin underneath dies. It is extremely painful. 
I'll take his word for it. I've not been bitten by a snake, but I can only imagine how difficult this would have been. And I've certainly heard of snakes, as you have, that have held on to people when they bite, or they bite maybe your boot uh, through, through on your foot. And I've heard of guys trying to shake the snake off, but the fangs got snuck, stuck in the leather of the boot. And so Paul was, you know, it, it, it seems like the text is mainly like, hey, Paul was like, no, no problem. But I got, I got to just think he had a little bit of a rush when he initially got bit by the snake. I mean, it's a, it's a disastrous type experience. And so we see what happens in verse four, your next blank, the assessment of the natives. So when they watched this go down, when the natives saw that the creature hanging from his, that the creature was hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And so when the indigenous people again saw the viper hanging from Paul's hand, they immediately deduced that he must have been some sort of criminal. I mean, the natives jumped to the conclusion that fate was going to have its way on Paul by punishing him with uh, this brutality and physicality of the snake bite. And some argue here that this may not have been a viper, uh, but some argue actually it might have been some kind of harmless uh, snake. It is worth noting that the word creature here in verse 4 is uh, in the ancient world, according to A.T. Robinson, referred to a poisonous snake. Robinson writes, quote, Aristotle and the medical writers apply the word to venomous serpents, the viper in particular. Well, not only that, but as a trained physician, you got to think that Luke would be unlikely to mistake a harmless snake for a poisonous one. Sir William Rancy notes that, quote, a trained medical man in ancient times was usually a good authority about serpents to which great respect was paid in ancient medicine and custom. Furthermore, the fact that the locals say that this snake bite is a form of punishment was evidence that they themselves knew that this viper was extremely dangerous and poisonous. How else would they be in fear that Paul would somehow now be in danger of suffering great harm and might just fall over dead? Here is yet another illustration of the truth that all cultures have a sense of justice. The islanders had no doubt from the presence of the Roman soldiers that Paul was a serious criminal, even a murderer probably, since uh, he would not be able to escape this fate. And although he had been saved from the sea, justice would not allow him to live. Again, this shows the same truth we read from Romans 2, 14 and 15, where it says the work of the law was written on their hearts. They're, they're assuming he's going to get what he deserved. And he must have been an awful criminal, maybe even a murderer. And when they says there in verse 4 again, that they thought this man is a murderer. And the fact is, he was. Paul was a murderer. Have we forgotten about the testimony of Paul, who after Stephen was stoned to death in Acts 7, Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, and Saul approved of his execution. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 says, but Saul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Paul himself says in Acts 22, verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And in, again, in Acts 26, verse 10, Paul says, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
I mean, the truth of the matter is, Paul was a murderer, but he's been saved by the grace of God. And because he's been saved, he's been forgiven. And the truth is that all of us are also murderers. None of us deserve to live. Jesus said in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 and 22, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable of hell fire. So basically, Jesus is connecting the dots, and he's saying the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, also includes anger. And if you have anger in your heart towards another, it's the same thing as committing murder. And if that continues in you, then you don't deserve to live because you deserve God's judgment. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Have you read James 4, 1 through 2 lately? When you desire something and you don't get it and it causes a fight or a quarrel, it's the same thing as you murdering that person. And Jesus has already connected the anger with the murder of our judgment ought to be death, right? That's what we deserve according to Romans 6, 23, for the wages of our sin is death, right? But the free gift of God, we know, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul had received that free gift, if you're in Christ today, you and I have received that free gift. And I'm just trying to say, if justice had its way with all of us, as these Maltese are kind of saying, hey, he must have been a murderer. He's going to get it. He's going to die. That's what we all deserve. But thank God that grace stepped in. Thank God that he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We all deserve death, but God gave mercy through the cross. And this message, I believe, is going to be shared with the Maltese, but in a unique way. And that's what we see going on now in verses 5 and 6. It says the altered view of the Maltese, the altered view of the Maltese, verses 5 and 6. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and they said that he was a god. So Paul shakes off the creature, this viper, into the fire, and he suffered no harm. This altered view now of the Maltese is, is changing, right? They, they, they watch carefully and they waited expectantly for Paul to suddenly fall over dead. But after a long time, could have been a few minutes or even an hour or two, but at this point, I mean, certainly Paul would have been writhing in pain, his hand would have been large and puffy, his wits would have been shaken and unstable, but instead, no misfortune came upon Paul. Nothing unusual happened to him. And so the Maltese changed their minds and they began to say, well, he must be a god. And obviously they had been mistaken. This man was not a criminal, they were thinking at this moment, he must not have been a criminal, but some type of celestial being. He was not an imposter, but an immortal. He was not a convicted felon, but a supreme phenom. And this is an example, again, of the fickleness and the changeableness of the human heart and mind. Certainly, Paul's response 
to going from an outcast in their minds to being a hero has to be comparable how he would have responded in this moment like he responded earlier, if you remember, in Lystra in Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. Again, that passage discussed how after Paul healed someone, they thought he was a god and began to worship him and to pay him homage. And they thought Barnabas was Zeus and they thought Paul was Hermes. And Paul responded back in Acts 14, 15 this way. He said, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. I believe that Paul most likely responded in a similar way to this situation. And when they saw him on Malta and they now they think he's a God, the God who rules the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it was with Paul, but Paul was not divine. And the islanders received a visible display of God's power through his servant's immunity to the viper's uh, venom. But I believe that, that, that Paul would have taken that opportunity. Again, I'm just going, it's not in the text. I understand that. But I'm just saying, knowing his character and his habit, he most likely used that opportunity to be a witness for Christ. That's what Paul did throughout the book of Acts. That throughout the book of Acts, whenever there was... Uh, miraculous things that were done, they were done to garner people's attention to point to both the message and the messenger as being a divine message of the gospel and that the gospel alone would be able to save them. And so what happened to Paul was an act of God's kindness on display to these superstitious islanders. They were surprised by the event and Paul was probably also surprised by the snake bite and now he understood that there was a ministry opportunity that the snake bite would afford him. And since the shipwrecked group stayed on the island for some three months, if you look ahead at verse 11, it says, after three months, we set sail on a ship. So we know they were on Malta for three months. I would bet, I'm not a betting man, and I certainly shouldn't bet from the pulpit, right? But I would bet that Paul shared the gospel over those three months. He had ample opportunity to explain to them why he didn't go down with the snake bite and why he didn't go down in the ship. And I believe that Paul took that opportunity and then we see how it affected the whole island. So we've seen the hospitality of the islanders, the horrendous snake bite. Now number three, the healing that affected the whole island. Your next blank says the healing of Publius's father. Verses seven and eight. Now in the neighborhood of that place where lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. So not far from where the sailors reached the shore from the shipwreck were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius. And as his title, the chief man of the island suggests, he was indeed the governor of Malta. In fact, there was actually an inscription found later with this man's name on it, and it identified him as being in charge at this time. Now, Publius graciously welcomed all 276 people and provided them uh, for them courteously for the next three days, which also spoke of the vastness maybe of the structure that was built or at least the opportunity to, to somehow house these people for 276 days until they could make more suitable arrangements for the rest of the winter. 
Paul was accustomed to establishing a relationship with the leading figures of an area, and Publius extended this hospitality even though his father was lying on his sickbed, and he was probably sick as a dog, as we read here, that he's afflicted with some type of recurrent fever and dysentery. This ongoing fever was likely some type of gastric fever caused by a microbe found in goat's milk, which was common on the Isle of Malta, dysentery often resulting from poor sanitation, was also common in the ancient world. Some described the malady as a bloody flux. We're talking about dysentery because of the intensity and the discharge of blood and mucus together with a loose stool. Today, we know this to be caused by a parasitic bacteria or amoeba, but in Paul's day, superstition still attributed many ailments to evil spirits or to angry gods. Patients could also contract the disease by being in contact with fluids of infected people, so epidemics were not uncommon. Those who did not recover from dysentery usually died from dehydration. And Dr. Luke may have done what he could do to help the man as a physical physician, but what this man really needed was divine healing from God. And so Paul visited him, and he laid hands on him, and he prayed for him, and God provided the healing. Paul's prayer acknowledged his dependence on God's power, and his laying on of the hands affirmed that God was working through him. And then we see what happens in verse 9, your next blank, the healing of the rest of the people. So, and when this had taken place, when he had healed Publius's father, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So not surprisingly, after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island, they came for healing as well. And Luke doesn't state how Paul used, again, the opportunity for the gospel, but we're going to go ahead and make the assumption that based on the character of Paul and his habit throughout the book of Acts, I have no doubt in my mind that he clearly connected the healing power of the miracle with the healing power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly this reminds us some, somewhat of how Jesus used healing to point people to the glory of God. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 15 verses 29 through 31, we read Jesus went on from there and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up on a mountain and sat down there and great crowds came to him bringing with them the lame and the blind and the crippled, the mute and many others and they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered, and when they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. I think Paul, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, just followed in his steps. When people came to Christ, he healed them. When people came to Paul, he healed them. When people came to Christ, he pointed to his father. When people came to Paul, I'm pretty sure he pointed to his father, Jesus, healed them all. No matter what their disease was, no matter their handicap, no matter their predicament, he healed them all. And in a similar way, Paul heals them all as well. And back in the gospel, when Jesus healed them all, it said that the crowd marveled and they wondered how. How could this happen? How was it that the mute were speaking? And how is it that the lame were walking? And how is it that the blind are now seeing? And how is it that, that the power of the God of Israel is at work through this person? How could that be? And the only answer would be because Jesus was God's son. 
that Jesus was divine, that Jesus was using this healing power that was a divine part of who he was to be a testimony to his fulfillment of all prophecies, to his fulfillment of the atonement, to his fulfillment of providing redemption to all who would look on him with eyes of faith. And certainly, Paul, in a similar way, pointed these islanders on Malta to the glory of Jesus Christ, who can not only heal our bodies, but heal our souls. And then we see in verse 10, the healing result resulted in great marks of respect. Verse 10, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And so the the next verse, verse 11, I already mentioned, three months uh, later is when they were going to set sail. So that means they were on the Isle of Malta for three months, and during that winter, I would suggest to you that there were probably many miracles that were performed. And during that winter, there were many lives that were changed. And during that winter, there were many relationships and friendships that were built. And so as the visitors are now ready to continue their voyage to Rome, the natives of Malta honored the sojourners greatly. In the original language, it says they honored them with many honors. And so when they were about to set sail, they were given an abundance of supplies. The outpouring of love suggests that at least some of the Maltese were respective to the preaching, uh, receptive to the preaching of the gospel. And so after a very generous and gracious farewell from the locals, Paul and his men boarded an Alexandrian ship which was bound for Rome. I love how Romans 13, 7 says this, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Paul had honored the Maltese people by healing many of the sick. The Maltese people honored Paul by providing all of their supplies that were needed for the continuation of their journey. God always provides for his own. As Psalm 34:10 says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Proverbs 3:27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, and when it is in your power, do it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Now, one of our takeaways from this passage today should be, in general, that if you are kind to God's people, God will be kind to you. Paul was kind to the people of Malta. They were kind to him. I mean, they actually started it with some kindness, and then he returned the kindness, and then they continued to be kind to him. And the natives of Malta showed an incredible kindness to Paul and to all the others while they were stranded on the island. And I believe that in part, because of this, God brought healing through Paul to all those who were sick. And the Bible is full of examples of those who persecuted and opposed God's people end up receiving judgment, but those who are kind to and enable God's people end up receiving blessings from God. So with this in mind, if you see there on your note sheet, you can flip over in case you're like, where in the world are we going now? With this in mind, I have decided to take just a few moments here at the end of our message to give you a crash course on Israel. We're going to talk just for a few moments about what our perception is to what's going on in Israel right now. And I'm trying to take this principle from this passage to say those who are kind to God's people 
receive his kindness. Those who avenge God's people will receive God's judgment. Let me just remind us about Israel's past. Your first blank there. A crash course on Israel. Let's talk about Israel's past. Well, who, who, who were God's chosen people? Certainly you've heard the phrase, God's chosen people. The first time this shows up in the Bible was actually in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, where uh, Moses writes, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You know, if you want to see the passage, because I'm going to refer to it a couple of times, but it's in Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're talking about this is the first place where we see God's chosen people. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. Verse 7 says, Deuteronomy 7, 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8 But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out and with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So as we read that passage, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, we see that Israel is God's chosen people. And a natural question to ask would be, why did God choose Israel? And the simple answer to that question would be that God chose Israel for his own glory. He he had a plan and a purpose of how to use Israel to further his purposes on earth. Now, to help you better understand what it means that Israel is God's chosen people, we need to understand the difference between our modern perspective of the word chosen and a biblical perspective. In the Western world, the word choose is often equated with preferred. Like when we go out for frozen yogurt, for example, we choose the flavors that we like the best. I'm a vanilla tart yogurt guy with a little bit of strawberries, blueberries, and raspberries, nothing else. That's that's my choice. That's how I prefer my frozen yogurt. And the point I'm trying to make is that when we choose something, it often means that we prefer one thing over another. In contrast, the biblical description of choosing will often refer to the function or the purpose of the choice. Romans 2 tells us that God does not show favoritism. So the concept of being chosen or God liking the Jews better is not quite accurate. Rather, when something is chosen, it is chosen for a specific purpose. When, when you choose to brush your teeth with a soft thistle brush instead of a wire scrub brush, it is not because you love your toothbrush more, It is because it's the best choice for the specific task. I mean, if you were removing rust from a piece of metal in your garage, then you would reach for the wire brush, not the toothbrush. You're simply choosing what was best to complete a specific job. So when we read in verse uh, 7, Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says, you are a people, a holy people, To the Lord your God, in the Hebrew, the word holy does not mean perfect or blameless or set apart. Uh, Excuse me, it doesn't mean holy or blameless. Holy, let me say it one more time. In the Hebrew, the word holy doesn't mean perfect or blameless. It means to be set apart for a specific purpose. Therefore, in this verse, God tells Israel that they are a holy people or a people set apart for a specific purpose 
and that he has chosen them for that purpose. God chose Israel for a specific purpose out of love and to keep his oath to their forefathers. And what was his oath and what was that purpose? Well, while he did bring them out of Egypt as promised, the connection goes back to the promise that God made with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, we read that God made an original covenant or oath in the Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham that he would multiply Abraham's descendants, as many as there are stars in the sky, and that he would be their God, and that he would give them a specific piece of land forever. And before that, in Genesis 12, God said that he would bless Abraham and his descendants so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Why Israel? Quite simply, God has chosen the Jewish people to demonstrate his own kind and promise-keeping character to the world and to bless all the families of the earth through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. God preserved his people through the period of slavery in Egypt. God preserved his people through the wilderness. God preserved his people when he brought them into the promised land. God preserved his people throughout all of the good kings and the bad kings of the divided kingdom. God preserved his people through the exile in Babylon. God preserved his people through the 400 years of silence. And then God brought the consolation that Israel needed through a Jew. In the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. The only problem, Israel rejected their king. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and therefore Israel rejected God's provision for them. Now that's just a crash course on Israel's past. Let's move in now to Israel's present Israel's present. Where are we at the present? Because Israel rejected Christ, they have not yet reached the future blessings promised to them. And all of the ultimate promises of blessing, peace, and a future kingdom can only be granted when Israel repents and receives Christ as her Messiah and walks in obedience to God's word. Israel has been scattered all over the earth and has faced incredible difficulty, persecution, and the Holocaust marked one of the darkest times in Israel's history. But in 1948, Israel became a geopolitical nation again, and it has survived these last 75 years as a hardworking, ingenious, and strategic nation in the Middle East. The fact that Israel has experienced political economic and military success is not necessarily a sign of God's blessings, though. Remember, Israel has rejected her Messiah and therefore is in a reprobate state. That means that they are living in rebellion against God, against Christ, and against his word. So this latest conflict, which is now a full-blown war, as you know, began just over three weeks ago on Saturday, October the 7th, on Israel's Sabbath and a Jewish holiday. This is exactly 50 years after the start of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Hamas's coordinated surprise offensive, codename Al-Aqsa Flood, began in the morning with a barrage of at least five thousand rockets launched from the Hamas Hamas controlled Gaza Strip against Israel. At the same time, 2,500 Palestinian militants breached the Gaza-Israel 
Israel uh, border, and they massacred and set fire to civilian communities and attacked IDF military bases near the Gaza Strip. Over 1,400 Israelis, mostly civilians, were killed, including 260 people at a public music festival. Over 200 unarmed civilian hostages were captured and Israeli soldiers, and they were taken to the Gaza Strip, including women and children. Israel began conducting retaliatory strikes before formally declaring war on Hamas a day later. At least 44 nations, mostly Western, denounced Hamas and explicitly condemned its conduct as terrorism. This effort was led by the United States, the UK, France, Italy, and Germany. In contrast, countries across the Middle East called for de-escalation and decried Israel's decades-long occupation of the Palestinian territories as the root cause. This position is led by the United Arab Emirates, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Qatar, Kuwait, Egypt, and Morocco. Furthermore, Iran warned Israel to immediately stop all military aggression against Gaza, saying that its allies would inflict a huge earthquake by opening up new fronts and threatening to intervene if the Israeli military launched a ground invasion of Gaza, which is most likely about to happen. Now, God is not sworn to protect Israel in this present conflict. As long as Israel is opposed to God and to his son, Jesus Christ, God has not promised to protect them. Jesus says, if you've rejected me, you've rejected the Father. The fact is, Israel does not worship the God of the Bible. Therefore, he has removed his hedge of protection and may even choose to use Israel's enemies to discipline her as he did in the past with Assyria and Babylon in the Old Testament. So what happens to Israel in the future? Your next blank, Israel's future. The persecutions of Israel, the persecutors of Israel may come and go, but I believe that the persecution against Israel will ultimately remain until the second coming of Christ. And as a result, the present day conflict of Israel is not a reliable indicator of the soon arrival of the end times. However, The Bible does say that there will be a terrible conflict in Israel during the end times. That is when the time period is known as the tribulation or the great tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. And here's what the Bible says about Israel in the end times. And it's all listed there for you on your outline. Next slide. Go ahead, one more slide. Here's here's the end time take on it. There will be a mass return of Jews to the land of Israel. Some have said that's what happened in 1948. I'm just saying that's not a guarantee. But in the end end times, there will be a mass return of Jews to the land of Israel. Number two, the Antichrist will make a seven-year covenant of peace with Israel. We'll know there'll be a coalition of about 10 nations that will somehow make a treaty together, and the Antichrist will be part of that. At that time, the temple, your next click there, the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem during the first part of that tribulation. But then the Antichrist, next click, will break his covenant with Israel, and a worldwide persecution of Israel will be the result. We call that the abomination of desolation, where that happens at the middle of the, um, of the, uh, the seven-year tribulation. Israel will be invaded, and then again, Israel will finally recognize, um, finally recognize Jesus as her Messiah. 
That's what we're waiting for. This part hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for Israel to recognize Jesus as her Messiah, and it may not happen on a mass scale until they're in the middle of the tribulation. Next click, Israel, at that point, will be regenerated, will be restored, and will be regathered. And many Bible prophecy scholars believed again that the six-day Arab-Israeli war in 1967 was the beginning of the end. Could what is taking place in Israel today indicate that the end is near? Yes, but does it necessarily mean that the end is near as in it's imminent of this seven-day tribulation? I would answer no. I mean, Jesus said it best, watch out that no one deceives you. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, and the end is still to come. Matthew 24, 4 through 6. So you say, well, what does this mean for all of us? If you're saying there's a past to Israel, which we know from our Old Testament, there's a present to Israel, ongoing persecution. We know there's a future to Israel when they come to Christ and then God delivers them into a millennium of a thousand years to demonstrate faithfulness to his people where all the land promises are fully fulfilled, where his people are fully redeemed, where all Israel will be saved, Romans 11:26. If that's still the future, what does this mean for us and our understanding of what's going on at the present? What should we do? Well, I would say, number one, we should support the nation of Israel. Remember, those who bless God's people are generally blessed. Those who go against God's people will also face judgment. So in a general sense, by all means, we support the nation of Israel. Number two, we should recognize God's eternal purpose to bless the world through Israel. That eternal purpose means through Christ. That ultimately, it's through Christ that they would have land, seed, referring to Christ, that provides a blessing, universal blessing of salvation for all those who come to Christ. And so in a sense, God has used Israel to bring about the Messiah, which could save the world from their, from their sins. Next, we should look to God to fulfill his covenant with Israel in his time. We do look to God, and we do know that God will fulfill his covenant with ethnic Israel in his time. But what's happening right now at this moment, I don't believe is a clear indication that that's happening. What else should we do? Number four, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You've heard me say that a couple of times. I wanted you to know it's a biblical command. And so it is Old Testament, but I think in essence that it's appropriate for us to observe Psalm 20, uh, 122 verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's what we do. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem and that God would return his people to himself, but it only comes through Christ, which is why I end with, we should seek to evangelize the Jewish people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they need more than anything else. More than more weapons and more protection and more political rallies. Israel needs Christ. Israel needs a time to heal. You and I need a time to heal, and true healing only comes from knowing Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to just touch on a couple of things from Acts 28. We're just blessed by Paul's example there on the Isle of Malta and the healing from the snake bite and the healing expressed to the Maltese people, their generosity towards Paul and the travelers. And it just reminds us, God, that we want to we wanna think through appropriately how to think through what's going on in Israel right now. We want to be those who would pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that would pray for repentance to be granted to individual uh, hearts and also to the nation of Israel that we know will come 
uh, forth at some point in your time and in your way. God, help us in the meantime to just be encouraged that we need time to rest and time to heal. And during that time of rest and healing, may we look to Christ. May we be saturated with your word. May we be confident of your promises. And may we rest in the finished work of the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ sacrifice for us. And by looking to Christ, we can truly be healed. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.